Brando Stay at Home self-quarantine episode of the Brando Cast. And today on the Brando Cast, you know, there's a couple people out there in the world that I will admit just know more about music than me. We've had Jimmy Pardo on the show. We've had the great Dave Holmes on the show. But today, I think we've got the person who just has all the info in his brain. Yeah, yeah, he's saying no. He's waving no, no, no. I don't feel that way, but I I do. The guy that I'm talking to today, he's an author, he's a journalist, he's a musician, and he is also a broadcaster. Most recently, he's got a book that you should have on your shelf because he wrote Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, which is the definitive story of the legendary Canadian comedy troupe. That means I'm only talking to one person today, and that is the mighty Paul Myers. Hey, hi. <laughs> well, I, I mean it. I, I'm so excited to talk. Uh, we're going to talk about XTC today, kids, and that is something that I know Paul knows incredibly well. I also just want to comment on you have the most professional setup that anyone on this podcast has had, minus Jimmy Pardo. You've got an incredible mic going on. You've got you've kind of put yourself in a, a little sort of cocoon of sound there. It's quite wonderful. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I, I should point out, and the listeners can't hear this, but um, behind the camera that you, uh, Brendan's looking at a camera, uh, there is two lawn chair uh, cushions that I, I they and they they perfectly fold out to create like a voting booth around the the back of the mic, and then I'm using two uh, green blankets up on mic booms. And that's the back, the back reflection. I come from the world of recording music. I started out as a musician, and I still am a musician, but I started out really wanting to be a, and it's embarrassing, I wanted to be a rock star. And I learned everything I could about the studio, and my, one of my best friends is a great engineer producer. Shout out to Michael Voyavoda. And uh, it, I've just always been fascinated with, you know, mic placement and stuff like that. So that's why I have this little cocoon set up here for you. Let me before we we're going to get into everything we're going to get into your history and the history of XTC today but you said something that that kind of sparked something in my head have you ever produced a band yes i've uh, well i've obviously not obviously but i've co-produced a lot of my own uh things i i produced uh i co-produced the gravelberries 1993 uh album bowl of globes which is still available digitally on Bandcamp, by the way uh, and uh i also co-produced the paul and john um record inner sunset which only came out in 2014 and is also still available on Bandcamp in vinyl which uh, and as well as digital downloads and cds we still have cds and uh but i also produced a band in toronto called knockout pill and they were a really cool indie band uh we did an ep called can i open the big present first and I got to say, I recently spoke to the guys who, in that band as two women and two men. And I said, I said, oh, my God, when I produced you guys, I was such a fucking dick. Like, I, I don't think I was probably, but I think I was that kind of there's always that myth that producers have to tell everyone what to do and that you have to be an arrogant jerk and you have to, like, you know, be a tough person. And and, you know, I mean, inadvertently, I mansplained to the guitar player a woman. And I don't mean I don't think I actually was, but. I was just jerk explaining to any musician. I was just telling the guitar player, you know, you need to play this louder. Or is that? But they seem to remember it differently. Thankfully, they seem to think that I was just, you know, very intense. Uh, but I know, I, I know, I, I, I look back now, and you think, you always think, right? Was I a jerk? Yeah, you know, like that David Mitchell sketch, uh, Mitchell and Webb. Are we the baddies? You know, like uh, I, I just anyway. So that was. 
I always thought you had to be a control freak, which is how I ended up sort of writing a book about Todd Rundgren because he had a reputation for being that kind of aggressive. And some people, even in my book about Todd Rundgren, A Wizard or True Star, not plugging it, but just telling you, uh, even some people who loved what he did t- still tell the stories about how he was kind of like, don't do that. That's stupid. But as Lenny Kay said of Todd Rundgren, if you know what you, he, Todd Rundgren once told him, if you know what you want, uh, I can get it for you. If you don't know what you want, I can do it for you, which is also kind of like, I love Todd. You know, Todd's a good friend of mine now, but that that, that is kind of a, well, he could cash that check. In other words, he, he could actually do it for you. He could play the instruments. He could sing. He sang backing vocals on a lot of people's records. But I would like to say that even Todd agrees, if an artist is going already and has all their stuff together, like Laura Nero or something like that, you don't have to do anything. You just have to make sure that they are guided along to find themselves, right? Anyway, that's a long answer for your question. Yes, I have produced people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you also, you have achieved the perfect record producer look. Like if it, I, I could just, just the, the vibe that you have going on, you could appear on almost any behind the music and say, you know what? I, I had, a, I just love being in the studio with the bangles because you know, they came in a fully formed band, and I was really excited to work with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, it's definitely, definitely, uh, especially I wear all black, and I have uh, very long white hair at this point. And I've had silver hair for years, by the way. It was one of those things where it started going, it was salt and pepper for many years, and then one, and then one year it just went all uh, salt, and uh, the all salt look. And then, um, and it's so funny because I do think that when my hair is like beetly and feathered, and like when it's freshly washed or something, uh, I could walk into a store and I bet some people would think if I spoke in an English accent, they would think I was, you know, friends with Mick Rock or something like it's just of that era. You know, so I look like a 70s English record producer who moved to California. A, th- a one billion percent and also helped Linda Ronstadt achieve her true yes. first. <laughs> I mean, yes. Someone <laughs> might say he's rocking a Peter Asher and they'd be right. Yes. <laughs> Uh, this is tremendous. I'm, this is why I'm so excited to have you today, because I also know that you're a bit of an Anglophile when it comes to music and music history, uh, whether it's uh, 60s British pop or psychedelic rock, which we're going to get into today. So why don't we do it? Without further ado, why don't we just jump into this, kids, because today we're going to talk about a band that Paul knows insanely well. And again, it's XTC. XTC. We're an English rock band formed in Swindon back in 1972, fronted by songwriters Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. The band gained popularity during the rise of punk and new wave in the late 1970s. Partly because XTC did not fit into contemporary trends, they achieved only sporadic commercial success in the UK and the US, but they attracted a considerable cult following and have influenced countless post-punk and Britpop bands. I was in college in the mid-1980s, uh, and man, were XTC important to all of us. Even in the early days of, of MTV, when MTV first started, they played Senses Working Overtime uh, nearly every day. So when did you? When did XTC come into your field of vision? Uh, I wish I, I guess I, it was slightly um, it was slightly after Go To. So what year is that? 78? 77? I, uh, I should have yeah. Googled it. Uh, but uh, so what happened was my brother Peter, Peter Myers, you find him on Twitter. Uh, Peter Myers brought home a lot of cool records. He was like uh, two, two years older than me. And he would bring home, uh, one week he'd bring home the Ramones' first album. And then he'd bring home Talking Head 77 or something. And we had heard XTC's go-to on 
I think it might have been Mechanic Dancing from from Go To. We'd heard that on CFNY, which is a great. Uh, well, it's still in. I think they're still on the air, but I, I haven't lived in Toronto for many years. But CFNY was very influential to any kid growing up in the late seventies, all the way through the eighties, and maybe even the nineties. Kind of what K Rock is, maybe to some people in LA, and maybe what uh, what's the New York one? Anyway, um, everyone had one. I, I'm sure Chicago had one. I'm sure, um, but the, this was like. College radio almost, but it was a commercial station, so it was like alternative rock before that was a, a term. And they would play the best of Britain, but they'd also play New York, and they'd also play local, which was really great. In Canada, we had these Canadian content regulations, so they called CanCon, and they would have to play just to help, you know, just to help um, keep the Canadian artists in the front of mind because we lived next to America and we kept getting stuff from Britain. But anyway, XTC were one of the bands that came in on CFNY and they were playing uh, stuff from their first album and they were playing stuff from uh, Go To. And I got into them just at that time and they were so frenetic and so energetic. Uh, maybe those are the same thing. And they were uh, slightly herky-jerky was the term I used to use. And the guitars would click and seemingly be atonal. And Andy was... Uh, Andy Partridge, the singer, was a yodeler almost, like, you know, like, whoa, refugee! You know, like, he, he would sing like that, you know, factory bull! You know, like, and I loved it! It was at the same time I was discovering David Byrne and the, you know, psycho killer, ay, 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 ay. And I was like, rock and roll, I had grown up with, like, you know, metal and uh, I, I'm rusher, like, from our neighborhood, you know, like, that stuff was great, but I was at that point in my life, I was 16, maybe, where I was just like, uh, you know, what's what's new? What's going to happen? What's and all of a sudden these bands were coming out that were like Susie and the Banshees, and and they were coming out and they were being really exciting and really like seemingly like they like, seemed to reinvent the wheel. Like I had now I can sort of see the lineage of where you know bands like Wilco Wilco Johnson and uh, you know Doctor Feelgood created that good clicky guitar sound that later infected the Cure, uh, not the, well the Cure as well, but mostly Gang of Four, XTC. They all kind of had that thing, and you know well, there's a lot of lineage and Captain Beefheart prevails through a lot of this stuff. I didn't know the lineage, so it just seemed like they were starting from year one, and um, so I uh, we got to go see them at a place called the Danforth Music Hall, and it blew my mind. It blew my mind when they played like this is pop and all these like and so this is the original XTC sound you know the sort of post punk uh, they break into a huge chorus and then it'd be like you know jagged guitars sort of like kind of what Slater Kinney ended up sounding like a little bit like that kind of pop songs that have incredibly broken glass parts to them you know and then and then of course the summer after that. Uh, they released uh, Drums and Wires, and they had really upped the prog end of it a little bit. Like, song like Making Plans for Nigel, it's hard to, it became so ubiquitous that it's hard to imagine that Making Plans for Nigel sounded dangerous, it sounded urgent, and it sounded a little like, um, a little like the future. I guess I, I guess I now could decode it as being, there's a certain craftwork element under underscoring the no 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 and then a guitar going it never changes and it goes all the way oh it changes a little bit but it pretty much pedals this thing all the way through it i'm already blown man like my mind is gone and i want to know everything about xtc at this point you know well you you said something that i have mentioned on this podcast many times before that when we're young whether you're a young dude or a young girl I feel like you need that older person in your life to go, hey, look at this. Turn your eyes away from the pop sugar that little kids like and 
Uh, yeah, I remember it with the, I had an older uh, family friend who turned me on to Van Halen, the first Van Halen record. Right. You need that older person in your life. So your older brother was that guy who kept delivering other bands to you. And, and you're naturally inclined to just want to consume it all, correct? Yes, yes. And Peter Peter had brought home, at least I told you, XTC, brought him Talking Heads, brought him Ramones. Uh, he also was uh, taking a course with a guy named Rob Bowman at York University, who's a, a musicologist who writes liner notes. And he would uh, teach a course on the, the black history of this music. So Peter would bring home, like, you know, uh, Mama Thornton, Big Mama Thornton, the sister Rosetta Tharp, and... Um, you know, all the, the real rock and roll archetypes that we had failed to hear about in the mainstream, you know, like when back when it was simple to say Elvis Presley was the king of rock and roll and nobody knew who, nobody generally knew who Sister Rosetta was after a certain point, you know. And, and so my, my brother Peter was also influential that way in that we were very aware of the, you know, Arthur Crudup version of, uh, uh, I, I can't even remember now, but like we knew who Arthur Crudup was. How about that? You know, and yeah, so that, so that's the other thing about Peter. Like he, he really, and you know, I, I guess to our credit, me and my brother, Mike, we, we listened to him. Like we went, Oh, okay. And soon it was like, you know, Mike would bring home Frank Zappa records to try and impress us. And I would bring home whatever I could, like, you know, I think I might've bought Susie and the Banshees or magazine and we were still living at home at this point. Like, and then it was only a few years later that we all, you know, dispersed into our first apartments, you know? Now, because I'm, I'm a rush nerd, I'm a oh, lifelong yeah. rush nerd and they are, they, I, 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 I talk about them as one of my God bands because I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico Right. And uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico is a, is a metal town, and Rush was just huge there. Did, was that, did you grow up in the Willowdale yes, neighborhood? Yes, yes, <laughs> I still remember. Okay, so I'm a little younger than those guys, right? So I always tell people, I don't know if people will get this, but I always try to tell people, imagine being from Hollis, Queens, and run DMC or on the radio, right? So the the XT, I mean, so so Hollis Queens is to run DMC what what uh, Willowdale is to Rush. I grew up walking past posters for gigs where Rush were playing like the St. Gabriel's Community Center, and I didn't know who they were. I mean, why would I know? I didn't even know if they meant Otis Rush or, um, <laughs> you know, and God forbid it was Mahogany Rush, which I I didn't even know anything about. In fact, when they came out, I thought, oh, it comes in mahogany now. Like I thought, you know. <laughs> You know, like, sorry, we're all sold out of the mahogany rush. We just take the, the basic rush. Um, but and I didn't know anything about them. And then, but then they started to get played on Chum FM, which was like the big sort of rock, rock station. Uh, and a, fr a bunch of friends of mine, we had a band called Nighthawk. And our, we covered, we covered Bastille Day. We covered Fly By Night. Uh, we covered, oh, what did we cover? Oh, we covered In The Mood because it's pretty easy. And then, and then we learned all those songs. And, and we also learned other other songs of the day, like we played We're an American Band and we changed the lyrics to We're a Canadian Band because we're <laughs> Um We also played Kiss, we played Kiss covers, we played Strutter, Cold Gin, and uh, Rock and Roll All Night and Party Every Day. And then, uh, and yeah, but anyway, so we all went to see, well, actually, this is a story I've been telling and I'm going to tell the truth now. My band went to see Rush the night they recorded All the World's a Stage at Massey Hall. God damn it. I didn't go. I, oh. couldn't, I couldn't afford it or something, but my band all yelled in the middle of Bastille Day, I think it is, is a break where they go, da -da 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 -da. and then you hear a bunch of kids screaming. They're screaming Nighthawk. 
it's my band. And they decided that since they were making a live record that we would yell, well, my band would yell, Nighthawk. I have simplified that story for, for, for years as being I was there because they were there for me, but they were my surrogate. I was not there. But um, I was mad also. I, you know, here's the thing. Talk about weird homoerotic things, and I'm not judging homoeroticism by saying that. But <laughs> I had a poster of Alex Lifeson in his tight, tight satin pants and long white scarf in my locker at school. I didn't have a picture. And I'm like, I'm saying this with the premise that I am a, a, essentially a heterosexual person. But I mean, I am. But but obviously, I loved Alex Lifeson. Now, I don't know if I loved him because he looked like a girl. I don't know anything about that. All I know is I worshipped Alex Lifeson for the like I just like I wanted to play like him. I couldn't. I didn't know how to use a wall up pedal like him. And so that was my summer, two summers before XTC. So I had realized it was bankrupt for me to try and become that. So that's what a lot of punk rock and new wave stories come from is people going, I wanted to be like Genesis, but I could never play those time signatures. So I started a band and we were like you know, uh, young marble giants or something like you play with what you have, you know, and, uh, and, and new wave and punk rock allowed people to go, Oh, I could be a musician, you know, cabaret Voltaire and the human league originally that they, they didn't even know how to play guitars. So they just, but they had synthesizers and they could make sounds. So it's the same creative impulse, right? It, it is so much easier to play new rose by the damned than it is to play La Via Strangiato by <laughs> rush. I love right. that so goddamn much. Let's bring it back to XDC. Andrew Partridge and Colin Moulding first met in the early 1970s and formed a glam outfit with drummer Terry Chambers. The band's name and lineup changed frequently. It wasn't until 1975 that they became known as XTC. In 1977, the group made their debut on Virgin Records and were often noted for their energetic live performances. They aspired to be completely original and refused to play conventional punk rock. Instead, XTC's music was a mix of influences from ska, 60s pop and psychedelic rock, and the avant-garde. In 1979, their single, A Making Plans for Nigel, which Paul so eloquently described, marked XTC's first commercial breakthrough. Now, when did you put together your first band? Like the first band where you're like, I, I'm with my friends and we're going to fucking do yeah. this. Yeah, well, again, Peter, uh, my brother Peter had a friend in school named Dave, Dave Huris. Dave Huris's father was the pastor at the Advent Willowdale, uh, Advent Lutheran Church in Willowdale, and it was a little shoebox size. It wasn't. They didn't have a. They didn't have a, a tower or anything. The church was just a box. It was like a. It was like a a, a little square building uh, in the middle of. Uh, this is very detailed. In the middle of uh, a, an island uh, where two, the north and south lanes of the traffic par uh, parted into this weird peanut shape. And there was a park with two schools in the middle and a church. And so that area was called the peanut. And if you look up your Rush fans, uh, you'll find that the peanut is a legendary area in the north of Toronto and North York. It's just above what is now Fairview Mall, which is one of the big malls of, that I grew up with. Um, the Advent Lutheran Church. So Dave Huris was in, 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 um, in my brother Peter's class, and he was starting a band. I had been taking guitar lessons at Peter Powell Music on Victoria Park Avenue, asking 
my my teacher Phil to teach me bar chords. I actually asked him to teach me all the rudiments of music, and he said, "What do you want to do with it?" And I said, "Well, I want to write rock and roll songs." He goes, "Why don't I just teach you bar chords and teach you some fundamental like D, G, and A chords, and you'll you'll be fine." And then and I said, "Well, can you teach me jazz? Because I need to know how to play everything." And he said, "You don't want to play jazz." <laughs> like he knew me. Like he wasn't like he was telling me that jazz was bad. He was saying, "I know what you want to do. You want to write." Chuck Berry songs, and then you want to, you know, Beatles songs. You want to be able to do that. Because I should point out that the Beatles were the predominant influence in my life up till the 70s, you know, and and then I rediscovered them again. Long story. Um, but uh, so then I've been practicing guitar, and I had a El Degas Les Paul copy that probably cost me $250 even in 1975, 6. Um, I should point out I'm 59 years old, which, you know, the internet will hate me now, but they all knew I was old. Um, so then I um, I was practicing the guitar, and Peter said, you're really good. I think you're as good as my friend Dave Huris. I think he might have even said I was better. And he said, uh, Dave's looking for a guitar player. Do you mind if I recommend him? And I was like, no, no, no. That thing of, no, no, no. Really? Like, I, I kind of said, like, sure, sure, go ahead. And I went, and I kind of... I wouldn't say audition, but I went and jammed with him, as they say. You know, come over and bring your amp. We'll jam. And we got together in the church, uh, in the back. It was a back room. It was more like a classroom, it looked like. It was like, it wasn't really, it was like, it was like a church basement, but it was on the same floor. And um, we jammed, and we both knew how to play Fly By Night, and we both knew how to play In The Mood. And we knew how to jam to some Kiss songs. And we said, you know what? And he was adamant about being the, the badass lead guitar player. And I was like always intimidated because I didn't care about being a speed merchant, as I used to say. But my hero was Jeff Beck. So what I would always do, once I got my Fuzz 90, or whatever it was called, uh, was it was, it, was that the name of it? Yeah. Uh, no, Phase 90. And then the Fuzz Box was called, it was an MXR Fuzz Box. I think it was just called MXR Distortion Plus. That was it. And once I got that and I could crank that sustain tone, I started doing, uh, I would clip off all the high end on my guitar and get what later would be Robert Fripp. But it was kind of Jeff Beck-like, you know. It wasn't as good as Jeff Beck, don't get me wrong. But I would, I'd be the guy who, when it was my turn to solo, I'd open with one long note and then go, and all my George Harrison influences would come out. So I was considered shit as a lead guitar player. And I now realize I was, cons I was actually very tasteful, but um, you know, you don't know that when you're 16. Um, so we jammed and then we got a bunch of guys around us. There was a, uh, a kid named Steve Harrison, who was like this puppy dog, uh, you know, cute kid with a full drum kit and that, so you're in and he was pretty good and he could play the, the backbeat in can't get enough by bad finger, a bad company. And he had that, just that subtlety of the boom, gack, dig, dack, dig, dack, when other kids might've played a gack, gack, gack. And we could also do smoke on the water with, with the, enough of the hi-hat, you know, you know, the Ian Pace stuff. So we were, we were happening and a guy named Steve Kyle, very tall blonde bass player, uh, came in and he could play bass, but he didn't like showing up for rehearsal or anything, or we called it rehearsal in those days. I think most people would call it practice. I don't know why I called it rehearsal. We always said we were going to be big rock stars, and we started buying um, these platform shoes called Master Johns. They were like six-inch <laughs> platforms, and uh, they were made in Toronto by an old Greek man named uh, John something, but it was Master John, and every rock star in Toronto had them, and we saved up and I remember they smelled so leathery, and and we. I also bought uh, very tight satin pants that were uh, like embarrassing now to think about. But you know, I, I, I they were made of satin, and I bought a satin shirt that had like slight brocades, but it wasn't quite a country shirt, but it had sort of slightly like uh, countryish looking. And I don't know why I thought that was cool. 
Um, maybe because everybody was wearing kimonos in those days. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so we jammed. We only got to play a few places. We we played a um, Jewish community center because somebody knew somebody, uh, a guy named Seth, who later died in a bus accident. I don't know why I'm mentioning that. But Seth, um, Seth said, you know, we're having a you know, a JCC fundraiser thing. And, um, you can't, we can't give you the gig yet, but can you bring your band and set up and play on a Saturday afternoon for, um, for the, for the people in the, in the like courtyard there. And if they like you, they'll hire you for the big dance. So we ended up playing this free gig, which they never hired us, but we played, we rehearsed and we got a lot of good songs and we did harmony lead solos as everyone did like the two lead guitar players, you know? And, um, and then we, the other gig, the only other gig I think we played was, I think we auditioned for a, like a cable TV show or something, or I, I, I don't even remember taking a band out that way. We just rehearse every Sunday and then go to, go to McDonald's. Like that was just, <laughs> the, and, and also dream about being rock stars. And I remember saying, I still tell this story to my friends who know me from then. Cause I still know a few of those people. I say, Hey guys, when we become big rock stars, I was the guy who was super concerned. When we become big rock stars, let's not forget who we are, man. Let's like not <laughs> let our egos like I, I'm already worried about what's going to happen when I'm a huge rock star. Like like this presumption that it's going to change me, man. But I'm going to try and stay true to the to my roots. But you are a you are a student of rock. You are a living encyclopedia. So you know that's what happens yeah. when the big money and the girls and the cocaine comes in. Yeah. French childhood friendships are shattered and destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I was reading Cream magazine and Circus magazine and Trouser Press even towards the. I've lived this rock and roll, my friend. <laughs> I love it. I'm so I'm so fucking happy right now. By 1980, XTC frontman Andy Partridge was fatigued from the band's grueling touring regimen. During one performance on their Drums and Wires tour, Partridge suffered momentary amnesia for getting XTC songs as well as his own identity. Once the tour was done, they had only a few weeks to write their fourth album. Black Sea was released in September of 1980 to critical acclaim, and it peaked at number 16 in the UK and number 41 in the US. And that album included this song, Generals and Majors. You want to, I don't usually do this, but you want to fill in some details about why Andy Partridge was starting to withdraw from live performance? What was that about? I, I want to make sure I get it right because Andy is actually a friend of mine and emails me when I get things wrong. Uh, and, but I will say this: um, the 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 story that he tells that I believe is that he was on uh, prescription sedatives. Um, his parents. Uh, I mean, this is him telling it. And again, Andy, if you're listening, I hope I told it right. And, and his parents basically, like a lot of kids, you know, he was medicated and then. Um, but it wasn't given an alternative to whatever that was. And so he was also drinking a lot because being on the road and Virgin records really, you know, a lot of bands have this, like they were worked really hard and they were touring, touring, touring. And I mean, I don't know if it was it around that time. Yeah, I guess it was, re- they were touring for re- respectable street from, I remember it was during the song respectable street that Andy walked off stage in Paris and he, that was his, that was it. I don't pretty much other than a few MTV shows after that, they'd never really performed. They did an acoustic tour after that, but he's really, they couldn't do it anymore. Uh, he says it was because, um, I believe his wife, uh, flushed the pills down the toilet on the eve of the second leg of a tour. And, uh, so he was cold turkeying from his sedatives 
and he was also, you know, exhausted and literally exhausted. And part of it is also, I think his body physically, this is my Paul Myers conjecture. Um, he, his body was physically reacting to being pushed like uh, too hard. Like, uh, and you know, yeah. and he, he was, and he's a creative child. Like he grew up as a, he's a great illustrator. He's a funny guy. He's got a million thoughts and his, mind works a lot faster than a lot of people, which is why those songs are so incredible. I mean, talk about a student of rock and roll. Andy Partridge can work the Kinks and Judy Sill and the Beatles and Hollies and Captain Beefheart and all into one song and Philip Glass even. Like he can he can somehow channel all this music at once and have it come out in the most original way that's simultaneously prog, uh, it's power pop, it's chamber pop, it's psychedelic. I mean, this is the guy who created the Dukes of Stratosphere in his spare time. You know, like like that was a whole psychedelic band that he just said, well, that's kind of not even really my band, but here's the thing. Uh, so this is going on in this brain of his while he's physically exhausted. And, you know, he always had more ideas than anyone around him. And, you know, to Colin and Dave's credit and Terry Chambers, the original drummer, they they um, respected that. And they worked really hard with him. And Colin Moulding was, I think, egged on by Andy being so creative that Colin became a better songwriter, similar to the way George Harrison flourished under the uh, under the shadow of Lennon and McCartney. George Harrison would end up writing "Here Comes the Sun," you know, like so. Colin Moulding ended up writing songs like "Generals and Majors" that were in the spirit of Andy Partridge, but with his own twist. And and Colin's an amazing musician, an amazing bass player, an amazing his chordal stuff is really great. And he, you know, uh, so, so all that's going on, they're all trying to support each other, but then the animosity started to happen because of the fact that they, you know, Andy's a lot, Andy's a lot. And, um, he went through a lot. And of course they just lost a lot of revenue and they feel like at times they've lost momentum. They didn't really break big as they could maybe because they couldn't tour. Uh, but uh, again, I don't want to stir up that stuff. And Andy, if you're listening, I I'm trying to tell it the best I can with complete sympathy that, you know, it's just because Andy is, Andy's like such an original, like I'm a big fan, obviously. You know? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a part of the story. I will say this as an, as an American teen, uh, the Beatles are the most important thing to me. I'm the perfect American age for Kiss in that they're they are at their apex when I'm in fourth and fifth grade, and we're all painting our faces to look like Gene, Paul, and Ace. Ace was my favorite. But American radio was terrible. They only ever really played the hits, and you had to know how to look for stuff. So XTC, you know, that they didn't come into my field of vision until the very early days of MTV played Senses Working Overtime. But that was it. You had to like have those super cool college radio station. And, you know, when you're 13 years old, I'm, I wasn't the kind of kid who would listen to college radio. Um, so it was really hard. I think it was harder in America to find these gems like yeah. XDC because American, uh, you know, industry is so much about profit and what's the most, what's the most popular and what's going to sell the most. Um, so, you know, everyone else had a big jump on us as, as far as this incredible band that goes on to inspire so many people. And the fact they didn't tour in the early eighties definitely hurt, uh, the way that we saw them. Let me just read some more stuff. Cause we're cranking along here. English settlement was released on February 12th, 1982. And it marked a turn towards the more pastoral pop songs that would later dominate XTC releases. It reached number five on the UK album charts. 
and even hit number 48 in the U.S. The album includes Ball and Chain, No Thugs in Our House, and Senses Working Overtime. A big tour was scheduled in support of the album, but it was canceled after several dates due to Andy Partridge's worsening exhaustion, as Paul described. The band stopped touring and became a studio-based band centered around Partridge, Moulding, and guitarist Dave Gregory. And again, this is Senses Working Overtime, which was my introduction to XTC on MTV. Boy, that is a mouthful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So by the time the early 80s roll around, what are you doing? Because I think you're getting closer to the age where you're going to really go for it as a musician, right? Yeah. Um, 78, I was. I had a band called Space Invaders. And that uh, Space Invaders was... Now, here's the thing you should know. We named our band Space Invaders because of the video game that was in the... It was an arcade game that was in a co- coffee shop on Queen Street West in Toronto. And we thought it was so hilarious that they had created a video game where you smashed rocks, you know, whatever it was you did. I, uh, and we thought, uh, what a great name for a band because we go around invading spaces. Within the summer that we named our band... Uh, Chrissy Hine and the Pretenders had a song called Space Invader, or Space Invaders, I can't remember now if theirs was plural. Um, and a lot of people assumed that we had named our band after the song by the Pretenders, which isn't a bad thing. Uh, but, um, but so yeah, we played a few gigs, and we we had a great, um, was the, the, the thing about Space Invaders was me and my, um, my other writer in the band was a singer named Sharon Cook, and she was just my archetypal uh, art art rock girl. Like, I think I would have said chick in those days. Uh, she was an amazing, a simple, uh, really, really straight rock and roll guitar player, but she had artistic David Byrne type sensibilities lyrically. And she was actually an artist. She went to the Ontario college of art. So, um, I probably had a crush on her, but mostly I idolized her. And I was so happy to be in a band where we had these two, uh, slightly different, like XTC. We had two slightly different lead singers, who could work with each other. And I got to play really cool good stuff on her stuff. And she would play really interesting stuff on my stuff. And, you know, we had, you know, Michael Voyevoda, who I mentioned earlier was the drummer and one of the songwriters also. And uh, Andrew Snell was on bass and we played like the edge club, which is where uh, I never saw XTC there, but I think they played there, but I know that's where I saw Bauhaus. That's where I saw um, once uh, Bruce Foxton from the jam came in there and sat and had a beer after uh, we'd seen him at the concert hall on the Masonic temple on, we'd just seen the jam and we all went to the edge later to have a beer. And then we saw him walk in. It was like, uh, it's where I saw, um, well, I also saw William S Burroughs there like reading. So it was like the, the edge club was very important to me. I remember playing one night actually uh, with a band called the Rio statics who are a Toronto band who are still together or they are on and off They're I think they're currently in a together phase. And, we were in the club and no, it was, I was seeing someone else and we were about to play the next night at, with the Rio Statics and somebody in the club heard, I overheard someone in the bathroom saying, who's playing tomorrow night? And they said, Space Invaders. And somebody said, oh, who are they? What are they like? And, and the guy said, they're like suburban B-52s. <laughs> and I, I was so, like, I love the B-52s, but I was offended by the suburban part. Like, and of course I was suburban. Like, you know, it's before, before I realized that the, you know, you should just be proud of whatever you are. Just bring, bring what you got to the party, man. Anyway, so, um, but I remember thinking, oh, suburban B-52s is a good way to describe what the Space Invaders sounded like ultimately, because they had, we had a female vocalist sometimes, and we also had a male vocalist sometimes, although I think I probably sang a little more range than Fred. I love Fred Schneider, but um, he was more of a shouter. And a talker. How would you describe, if, if you're not the suburban B-52s, how, 
what were you going for? What other bands were inspiring the Space Invaders? Well, I, the aforementioned XTC, the aforementioned Talking Heads. Uh, I, by then, I was starting to listen to Magazine, a band formed by yep. one of the original founding members of the Buzzcocks, Howard Devoto. Uh, I had a song called, um, in that band, in my band, I had a song called uh, Jello that was about uh, the impermanence of pop stardom. And again, so worried about this like happening to me. Uh, but uh, the chorus was, mountains of jello perish in time. Man, did you, did you feel that one? Anyway, um, and, and you know, I was super inspired by Magazine, but I was also inspired by, on that song, by Complicated Game from uh, Drums and Wires. Just the idea of this sort of nihilistic... Um, throbbing kind of music that was essentially pop about pop or reacting to pop. And so, you know, I'm going through that phase. I didn't, I didn't go to college actually. So this was my college in the sense, like this was where I worked out those ideas. This was my college rock band and space invaders lasted uh, a pretty long time. And we, we broke up the band mainly because like I said, I was so, I was such an idiot. Like I was so, I think I thought I was in love with the with Sharon the singer, but really what it was like I said was I was kind of obsessed with her. But like all young men of like a sad truth about us, I I was so confused about like well I don't know if I want to be in a band with her. It's <laughs> too torturing. It's too torturing. So we had but we had an amicable split. We stayed up all night and the band talked about this for hours and said, yeah, we we've probably done it. The band is over. So that was you know. And then I formed another band with some of the guys from the band that were left and and sharon went on to be a great artist so um so there you go um i will say this a quick tangent the light pours out of me by magazine is uh. one of my one of my favorite songs of all time all right let's bring it back to xtc we are hearing the mole from the ministry 25 o'clock is the debut record by english rock band the dukes of stratosphere but not really. 25 O'Clock is actually the eighth studio album by XCC, and it was released on April Fool's Day, 1985. It was publicized as a long-lost collection of recordings by a late 60s group, but it was actually new tracks recorded by Partridge, Moulding, and Dave Gregory. The project was conceived by Andy, as Paul said a little bit ago, as a one-off excursion into 60s-style psychedelic music. And the three rules were set during the recordings. One, songs must follow the conventions of 1967 and 1968 psychedelia. Number two, no more than two takes allowed. And number three, the use of vintage equipment was encouraged whenever possible. Just give me your quick uh, uh, impression of the Dukes of Stratosphere record. Do you love that record? Yes, I, I remember at the time. Uh, can I tell a little Andy Partridge story? Please. So I, I, in 1984... I'm in London uh, visiting with my friend, uh, actually Andrew from the Space Invaders, my first band. We started a band called Lifetimes Nine, which has a whole other story why we called it that. It was, but it was a duo. So we were, um, you could compare it to uh, like uh, Tears for Fears or other famous duo bands, but we weren't, I don't think we were even aware of Tears for Fears at the time, but we, we wanted to be like that kind of like, the two guys, OMD, you know, the two guys, <laughs> two guys who make the band, and the music wasn't like that, but the music was just an extension of what we were doing in Space Invaders, but with a little bit more. Um, by uh, by the time we did that band, 
it was just before I heard Crowded House. So, but it was in that direction. And well, actually, what Michael Penn, who's a former guest of yours uh, and your friend, uh, Michael Penn later did on the very first Michael Penn record. I was writing songs that were like that before I heard him. Not like as good as him, but yeah. but when I heard him, I went, "He's doing it!" You know, like it was like that. You know, like um, so that was what the Lifetimes Nine was like. But we were in London, and we had convinced ourselves we were going to move there, but we'd missed it. Like the 1984 London. You know, wasn't really happening. But a friend of mine was a journalist, and he was about to interview uh, Andy Partridge. No, he's about to interview somebody at Virgin Manor. Sorry, and he said, uh, "I'm going to Virgin Manor. Maybe you'll see Andy Partridge there." I go to Virgin Manor. I sit in on an interview with um, the Human League. No, uh, no, actually, it was Phil Oakey uh, for something uh, Electric Dreams he was doing. And 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 the, but on the same day that my friend was interviewing. The Heaven 17, the other half of the original Human League. So it was a really incredible thing. But between interviews, I walk around Virgin and I say to somebody, can I just look around the room? And they said, no. But then I saw Andy Partridge walking down the hall. Uh, actually, my journalist friend, Peter Noble, said, hey, there's Andy Partridge. And I said, right. And he said, no. And I looked over and Andy Partridge popped into the men's room. And I said to somebody else, I said, hey, can I use the men's room? So I went in the men's room and pretended to pee. Uh, standing in a stall next to, uh, standing in a like a urinal, like there's two urinals separately, and I didn't look up or anything. But then I said, I, I pretended to zip up and I was washing my hands, and I said, Andy Partridge, hey, it's Paul. I've sent you uh, fan mail. Uh, Paul Myers from Toronto, Canada. We have the same birthday, November 11th. And he said, it was oh great, great, great. I, I would shake your hand, but uh, you know, and he and he and he, and he also said something like, uh, this uh, bathroom is quite small. There's not enough room to swing a cat in here. He said, swing a cat. <laughs> And I remember thinking, I remember thinking it kind of lived up to my expectation of what it would be like to meet Andy Partridge. And, um, and then, but he was so nice. He washed his hands and we went out and there was a press area where they had all the eight by tens and promotional records. And he gave me like four, four different CD singles and uh, a, a, a copy of something else. But what I didn't know is he was there to talk about the Dukes of Stratosphere, which he had just delivered. And uh, he, I guess he was smart, and he didn't tell me about it. Um, and then when I, by the time I got back, this was in November of 1984. So I guess that record came out shortly after that, because I got a postcard from Peter Noble, the guy who had introduced me. And he said, he goes, you won't believe this. Uh, Andy Partridge just did an album called The Dukes of Stratosphere. And, and in his mind, this guy, I think he was saying, it's better than what XTC's last album was, which I think was... I can't remember what was it. The Big Express was their album before that. I uh, uh, I, I have my chronology. It might have been Mummer was their album before that. Uh, but uh, but anyway, so so that was my introduction to that was the climate with which I discovered the Dukes of Stratosphere. And yes, I loved it immediately because, like, talk about taking uh, I am the Walrus. I mean, Mole from the Ministry is is all of those things. And uh, but then you know what in the world? Um, uh, uh, your gold dress. Um, Bike Ride to the Moon, which is so Sid Barrett, you know, and it just, and uh, I remember thinking it was just amazing that, yeah, my hero for writing original music could also say, you know what, I'm not even going to pretend, I'm just going to do, uh, what do they call that, uh, there's a word for that, Monke, is it, no, no, not that's not the word, um, uh, when you, when you, when you do something that's an homage, uh, there's a name for that, uh, anyway, so uh, he basically did a style parody but lovingly, like, that's the thing. He's a deconstructionalist. That's what Andy Partridge is. Like, and Colin, of course, also has that skill. But Andy's the conceptual driver of that band. If, if XTC was an ad, was an ad agency, uh, Andy's the guy who has the, the campaign, and he turns to Colin and says, 20 tags, you know, and Colin, Colin, can, 
and I'm not trying to demean Colin because I think Colin is a, a very much a very Colin. I think helped Andy keep the idea that it was a band like Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison and Starr. And I think that that's the soul of the band XTC comes from the other guys. And Dave Gregory, of course, was just the utility man who could pull off any sound. And a large part of the Dukes of Stratosphere is that that uh, I later discovered through conversations with Dave Gregory is that Dave had all the guitars and had all like, I think he, I'm not sure who owned the Mellotron. I know John Leckie had a big part in it too. John Leckie had produced Pink Floyd and, and a lot of other cool things. And so John Leckie really helped them get the sound of the Dukes of Stratosphere. He had done go to as well. Who better to talk about XTC with than Paul Myers? I mean, it's, 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 we, we really should, should teach a class. So I'm going to, I'm going to play one, I'm going to throw one more thing at you. I'm going to, and we're going to get into Skylarking. Oh, love to. Because I want to hear your thoughts on this. This was the ninth studio record from XTC. It was released on October 27th, 1986, when I am a freshman at Northwestern University. Produced by Todd Rundgren. It became one of XTC's best-known albums and is generally regarded as their finest work. Skylarking was heavily influenced by the music of the 1960s. Most of the recording was done at Rundgren's Utopia Sound Studio in Woodstock, New York, and Rundgren played a large role in the album's sound design. However, the sessions for Skylarking were fraught with tension, especially between Rundgren and Andy Partridge. So I kind of feel like Paul Myers fill in some blanks, if you will. Well, first I want to say that I was discussing this with Robin Hitchcock on my podcast, the Record Store Day podcast. Not here to plug that, but just yes. And I, I, I had posited a theory of Todd's that um, that Andy, uh, part of the problem was that Andy didn't want to let go of the record because he liked being in the studio. And Andy did, in fact, email me to... Uh, to correct me on that. And so Andy is a, Andy wants it to be right. And Andy also has a strong vision. Andy knows what. So when I first talked about Todd Rundgren and I said, what Todd's ethos was, is if you know what you want, I can get it for you. If you don't know what you want, I can do it for you. Where, where the rubber hits the road though, is Todd also has, um, he has a sense of time, like, uh, like a bit of a driver. Like he'd been brought in to do bad finger, uh, the straight straight up album that had Baby Blue on it, and his job was to make sure that they finally finished the record because they had started it with Jeff Emmerich and George Harrison and Mal Evans, and it wasn't going anywhere and it wasn't getting finished. So Todd's job was to be cleanup man, and he also like they his thing was the label pays me money to come in and make you guys finish this record and have a and have a sense of focus. That can is that's great if it's not XTC who are one of the most inventive and original bands in the world. To Andy's credit, to Todd's credit, Dave Gregory even acknowledges that Todd's direction of Skylarking helped it get to be what it is. But there are some contentious issues from both camps about whether Todd still has a thing about Andy being bitter about it, and and Andy still has a thing about Todd being a sarcastic dick about it. So, uh, Imagine how I feel as a massive fan and friend of both of these people. So I I don't want to be milk toast about this, but I also want to say I have a huge respect for both parties, and both parties are incredibly focused, strong-willed, creative people. I do think that it is unfortunate that the way Andy was the Todd was brought in was 
to sort of save their bacon with Virgin Records. And that made Todd have a mandate to be a bit of a, a aggressive producer. But Andy, Todd was a huge XTC fan. And a lot of what they ended up getting out of XTC was very XTC. It's like uh, Erna for us is a great example of all the Mersey beat influences coming out uh, at the right moment. And, but then a song like another satellite, which is, kind of psychedelic and in it and also a little bit mechanical with like drum box sound and 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 you know the weird story about dear god being like an interesting thing about dear god is that and you know you know the whole story everyone knows the story that it was not on the album it was either andy's or todd's this is what i don't remember this is where i'm gonna get notes um one of them decided that uh, maybe virgin also decided it wasn't worthy of being included in the song cycle because that was todd's big idea was to create a day in the life so the album is from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and you know also the beginning of life so it was actually i think it was called uh oh day passes was originally the the name of the working title one of the working titles and then the idea was it opened with sorry i'm trying to get my albums right summer's cauldron so summer's cauldron was a summer's day and then it goes into lying in the grass colin molding and and then it goes through this to, towards the end it's like dying you know this 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 like and but you know there's sex life and death all through that record dear god sort of didn't fit in and um they cut it out and they put it on the b-side of grass i guess it was no i, I can't remember what it was the yeah was it the b-side of grass and, oh, i'm supposed to be the expert uh but anyway uh, and it became a college radio hit and they had to actually re- re-release the record with dear god on it and and Dave Gregory says that Dear God, you know, got them what they wanted. So Todd had essentially delivered a hit record to Virgin Records, which is what his job was. Um, I know that Andy does speak well of the result, but just will forever remember feeling abused by Todd's, you know, attitude. He was very sarcastic with them. And but I also know that Todd has huge respect for Andy as a songwriter and as a musician, but felt like if he'd been in Todd's estimation, and Andy, I know you're listening, I don't mean that he was necessarily right, only you guys were there, but the the take from Todd was that Andy was going to take forever and he needed to make a decision, and that his job was to make people make decisions. I don't want to get involved anymore in this, but that's, like I said, imagine the child of the divorce here, like, just like feeling like, Mommy and Daddy, you've 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 made a great home, you know. Like just acknowledge that, you know. But I mean, people are people. Well, for me, look, the result is all you need because I'm in college when this record comes out, and this is a quintessential college record from the '80s, and everybody had it. I mean this this record was was as almost as important as as YouTube Joshua Tree. And, you know, the replacements, pleased to meet me. I mean, there were so many uh, incredible albums coming out at this time. And, you know, whatever the creative tensions were and what, however they just dealt with each other on a day-in, day-out basis, the result is is epic. And it also stands the test of time because, I mean, this is just an, an incredible record. Paul, you and I have been talking for one hour and one minute, so... Uh, it's time to wrap things up. I, I don't want to keep you for too long, but I would love for you to promote anything uh, that you want uh, oh, right just, now. Can I just tell you one more XTC story? I felt like uh, 100%. I was 100%. When we first agreed to do this, I remember thinking that I was going to tell you this. So I, the first time I met Andy Partridge ever, actually, was before I met him in London. And it was outside the, the, a place called the Masonic Temple, a.k.a. the Concert Hall in Toronto. XTC on the um, uh, Black Sea Tour. And uh, 
they had a tour booklet that they sold. It was like, you know, um, like a, you know, a glossy booklet. And uh, I bought it from the merch table and I waited outside the Masonic temple at the end of the show. Oh, first I'll tell you about the show. I was at the show and even though XTC weren't strictly a punk band, we were so excited to see them play. Like uh, they were playing songs from the first couple of albums as well. So they're playing into the Atom age. And I started pogoing with some of my friends jumping up and down and, but doing this thing with my arms, which I can't act out on the podcast, but I would explode my arms like a mushroom cloud. And because the song was into the Atom age and it was a peppy song, I would do this thing where I go up in the air and then explode like a mushroom cloud. And I was yelling at my friends, it's the mushroom cloud pogo. And we were doing this thing and just doing it like to have fun. And it was, it was the least, um, the least aggressive pogoing ever. Cause it was straight up and down. We weren't trying to hurt anyone. And I looked across the room also, and I'm, I, I hope someday I can ask Catherine O'Hara if this is the right concert that I remember. Catherine O'Hara and Mary Margaret O'Hara were across the room also enjoying XTC. And I remember I love, and I still do love Catherine O'Hara. We were huge, uh, huge uh, SCTV fans, XTC, XTC. Uh, and uh, I didn't know Mary's music at the time. Uh, it was only a, a little bit later that I learned of Mary Margaret O'Hara's great music. But, uh, and she has an Eddie Partridge story too, which is, uh, I let her tell that. Um, but uh, I looked over and I went, oh my God, Catherine O'Hara loves XTC. Like this is, and I started a squeeze show as well. And it was like, just the thought that, you know, because we lived in Toronto where you would see Catherine O'Hara on the street and you would see like Dave Thomas and Eugene Levy on the street. Um, you know, that's one of the beauties of growing up in Toronto is that you saw these people. But, um, uh, but anyway, so but at that gig, I'm lining up afterwards. So I have the booklet and I want them to sign it. So Colin Molding comes out and I think he was, you know, you now know that people just want to get on the bus and have a beer. Like the, so but Colin was friendly, but like in a hurry to get on the bus. And Andy was friendly also and in a hurry to get on the bus. But they both spent about, you know, five minutes with me signing and appreciating the fans. And they signed my little booklet. And I went, we went to a suburban party after, not with them, but me and my friends all went to a suburban party we'd arranged to meet because we're all living in the suburbs. And I showed the book around and I said, I, I met Andy Partridge and Colin Molding. I don't know where Dave Gregory was at that point, but um, that was like such a big moment for me to, to have that. And me and my friends, we all agreed that we loved XTC. Like, so when, when uh, English Settlement came out, M Michael Voyavoda, again, who I mentioned earlier, is a producer and drummer. We sat in a studio that he was working in and put English Settlement on the speakers and we listened to every frequency and we analyzed it and deconstructed it. I see they're moving in an acoustic direction. Look, nylon string guitar. Um, and uh, they sound like they've been listening to Druid folk music. This is great. And we were just trying to figure out what the next step of XTC was going to be, much like Elvis Costello or, uh, you know, or uh, the Beatles, like where there would be a new twist on every album. Like they would go somewhere new. And when, uh, when they'd done uh, um, Wonderland at Colin Moulding's song off Mummer, and it was pretty much a synth song, you know, like a, a dreamy synth song. It sounded like it came out of Japan or something. Not the group, but the country. And... Um, I just I remember deconstructing and savoring every inch of the sound and the song and like you know how some things are great records and some are great songs like I would hit it on both levels with XTC so that's what I want to say about that and if, uh, as far as plugging my own stuff <laughs> I uh, I'm hosting the Record Store Day podcast for the people at Record Store Day and uh, uh, most recent episode up is uh, with Van Dyke Parks the great musical genius who. Uh, just re-released um, Orange Crate Art, the Brian Wilson album he did, and uh, he talks about Lowell George and everything. And we've got other episodes with Lucinda Williams. We've got Jane Weedlin. We've got Susanna Hoffs. It's basically Tony Visconti. We we talked to all these people. Uh, uh, we 
with a skew towards record store stories, but also just end up talking about their careers. And we also talk to record stores uh, and how they're getting through this time. So it's kind of neat. I, I phone up different record stores around the country that are given to me the numbers that they want to be on the show. It's not like a cold call. And, uh, and that's cool. And also um, kids in the hall book is still in stores. Uh, one dumb guy. And my book, Todd Rundgren, A Wizard of True Star, is uh, it's not about that album. It's about the whole career that's out there. And there's a collection of power pop stories called Go All the Way. These are essays about power pop with me and S.W. Lawden uh, curating them. And we write stories in them, but we also have other authors writing. And uh, that was called Go All the Way. And that's still available from Rareberg. There you go. Damn, Paul. You brought the thunder today. <laughs> I cannot. Wow. I cannot thank you enough. This is exact. This is how I want to spend my time. I want to <laughs> me too, me too. Time. This is how I want to spend my time. So I am, uh, I am eternally grateful to you for spending the time with me to break down XTC and so many other things. So please listen to Paul, go check out his stuff. Uh, and if you're a fan of the kids in the hall, that, that book, uh, one dumb guy is the definitive uh, history. Pull my ears on Twitter. That's P-U-L-M-Y-E-A-R-S. Think of pulling my ears, but with one L. Done and done. And thanks again, Paul. All right. I'm going to have Richard play us out with King for a Day from XTC's fantastic 1989 album, Oranges and Lemons. And I just want to say to those of you who have been joining the Brando cast on a regular basis, thank you so very much. We love it when you like, subscribe, and of course, leave reviews on Apple. We got some great guests coming down the line. So until the next time, cats and kittens. Everyone's creeping up to the-